Back when we founded Emmanuel in 2007, one of the commitments we made as a church was that we're not going to duck the hard stuff. Today we got hard stuff to talk about. Well, throughout this series, we've had hard stuff to talk about. Um, this topic in particular, when John the Baptist raised issues surrounding this topic about one of the Herods, it got him imprisoned and then beheaded. And in Jesus' case, the topic we're going to talk about today, when Jesus was on the outskirts of Jerusalem right before Palm Sunday, or what we call Palm Sunday today, his enemies had devised a trap, and the trap they used was about this topic. Today's topic is marriage. We're going to talk about marriage today from a reconciliation standpoint. Oh, Well, when we approach hard stuff at Emmanuel, we do our best to try to approach hard topics the way Jesus did. The word says that Jesus was full of grace and truth, both of those things. And I, and I just know, because I've done this enough, that when I step down, there's going to be folks who are going to say, well, you didn't beat up those people. You didn't beat them up. Right. We don't beat people up here. And there's going to be others who are going to be thinking, wait a minute. Some people might have been uncomfortable by what you said. <laughs> yeah. Guess what happens when you encounter Jesus? A lot of things are revealed. So we'll do our absolute best to walk in grace and in truth here this morning. We'll do our best. All right, well, here we go. If you're just joining us, we are nearing the end of our Lenten journey. For the last six weeks, we've been pressing into all kinds of issues from a reconciliation lens. We've looked at politics. We've looked at the relationship between men and women and how that relates to church. We've, um, we've looked at, what else? It's politics, that one. Uh, religion. We talked about religion. We talked about these several topics. Well, we've done our best throughout the series to offer biblical perspectives and bridge-building skills that can help us have conversations that hopefully are productive and God-honoring. And we're going to need some help here as we do this with marriage because this is a really tough, tough topic. One of the best books I've ever read on difficult conversations says that in a difficult conversation, there's at least three conversations. And here they are. We'll put them up on the screens. There's the what happened conversation. There's the feelings conversation. There's the identity conversation. When you have a conversation about marriage, which of these landmines are you likely to step on? All of the above. So that's one of the things that makes this tricky. The other thing, or another thing I should say, that makes conversations about marriage so challenging is you can't talk about marriage without talking about love. And in our culture, you start talking about love and things can get sideways really fast because we have so many different definitions about that. I came across this great quote about love um, in the other, or rever, other resource that we recommend throughout the series. And T. Wright says this about love. He says, the very word love causes all kinds of problems in the English language. Our vocabulary, I love this sentence. This is so true. Our vocabulary has become what? Impoverished. Isn't that true about the English language and the dialogue out there? Our language has become impoverished. Where the Greek had four words for love, we have at least, maybe at most two, love and affection. They're related, and there's related ones like fondness and compassion, but none of them come near to what Paul is talking about. The highest form of love, many of you know this, in the Greek language is the word agape. That's the kind of love that Paul was writing about in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. It's a kind of love that Christ modeled for us, and it's a kind of love that his followers have been called to model for the world. It's the kind of love 
that would make someone like John the Baptist not be able to just sit back and say, hey, Herod, you were on a trip. You went to visit your stepbrother. You were attracted to his wife, so you divorced your wife and she divorced him. You married one another without reflecting on the collateral damage that's going to cause. It would be a lot easier for John the Baptist, especially since this was a powerful person, to have just stepped back and said, you be you, Herod. You be you. But there's times where you have to say something. And in those times where you're compelled to say something, how do you do that well? That's what we want to talk about today. How do you do that well? Doing it well doesn't mean it's going to go well. John the Baptist got beheaded. You know, Jesus' enemies, no matter what he said, he gave the perfect answer to their question. They looked for another thing to trap him with, right? But as much as it depends on us, here's what we're going to go today. I want to encourage you to take out your, your green Palm Sunday green sheet, and uh, let's get started. When it comes to difficult conversations about marriage, what does a God-honoring approach look like? That's what we're going to try to take on today. If we're going to have a conversation about marriage, as much as it depends on you, what does a God-honoring approach look like? And again, for the record, it'd be a lot easier, a lot easier to just duck it all together. Just duck it all together. But I don't know how we do that. I don't know how we duck an issue like this and, and, not, uh, and still be faithful to the kind of community that God's called us to be. Well, fortunately, we do have an example for us to follow. Jesus' ministry was in a Jewish context. And for the most part, the Jewish community had clear boundaries, clear boundaries when it came to sex and marriage. There are some things that Jesus didn't really need to talk about with the Jews because they were mostly on the same page. Here's the best concise summary I could find that speaks to where the Jewish um, teaching landed. In Jewish law, intercourse sealed a marriage union or betrayed it. That's as cut and dry, I think, as, as you can put it. And that's how it was for most of the Jews. Now, the rest of the world, rest of the world had some real different perspectives on this. Corinth, in particular, had a reputation for pushing the boundaries so far that the Greeks even made up a word based on the Corinthians that described promiscuity. They said, oh, you're Corinthianizing, you know, or something like that, right? Here's a quote that reflects the paradigm of many in Corinth. This is an absolute wow. Mistresses for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That's the culture that Paul was trying to speak into. Wow. That's the culture that Jesus commissioned Paul and the Holy Spirit empowered Paul to speak into. So when we read 1 Corinthians, that's what we're looking at here. All right, well, let's take a look with the brief time we have to see what does Paul do. Into a culture like that, how, how does he speak? How does, where does he set boundaries for the new church? And then how does he respond when people say, forget your boundaries? That's what we're going to look at here today. Let's begin here. There's a place in your notes. If, you're, if you want to try to have a God-honoring conversation about these things, followers of Jesus anchor to Scripture. No surprises here. We come back to this over and over and over again because in our culture, we're drifting farther and farther from it, even among Christians, you know? One of the things dividing the church in Corinth were people who believed they're no longer accountable to the boundaries that the sacred Jewish text put in place. And they began to see Paul as just one of many voices who are out there sharing one of many 
different perspectives about what it meant to follow Jesus. Now, people are entitled to their opinions. People are entitled to their opinions. But if you want to have a productive conversation, you have to move beyond that, right? You have to try to say, let's, let's agree on some, a framework for this discussion. If you're going to have a reality-based conversation, it's important to be honest about truth, right? So, to demonstrate truth, I've got just a wicked beverage up here. I've been trying to drop Diet Coke for about five years. Man, I'm cutting down, but I still got a long way to go. So on this table, I've got Diet Coke. On this table, I have other beverages. Diet Pepsi, we got juice, we got water, we got coffee, we got uh, sparkly water. Are these two the same things? No, Diet Coke is Diet Coke. These things are these things. <laughs> right? Is that just opinion? or is it, I mean, Right, they're different, right? In your notes, I, I put four basic bullets down. You know, I, there, there are, Christianity has some fundamental ingredients. There are some areas where we can agree to disagree, but there are some fundamental ingredients. One of them is this. If we disregard the writings that Jesus considered holy, or if we reconstruct a, quote, historical Jesus that history doesn't testify to, if we marginalize the teachings of an apostle that Jesus commissioned and the power of the Holy Spirit authenticated, if we do these things, let's at least be intellectually honest to say that what we're practicing then is we're not practicing Christianity. For those who are trying to practice Christianity, Paul's writing to them. He starts off his letter, Christ, 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 Christ. He's doing the best he can to say, here, this is what Christ-centered living looks like. And as we dig into his letter, we see that Paul follows Jesus' example when it comes to Scripture. Jesus anchored to Scripture, Paul anchors to Scripture. We'll give you a couple examples now as we move on to number two. Number two is this. If you want to have a God-honoring conversation about marriage, different situations merit different what? Conversations. Can I get an amen to this? Again, this is just basic, right? Different conversations or different situations merit different conversations. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul draws a distinction between church insiders and church outsiders. And he says, if you're having a conversation with insiders, that's going to be one thing. If you're having a conversation with outsiders, that's a different thing. We're not changing what we believe is true, but it's going to be a different conversation. So Paul was writing to insiders. That is so important to remember. And here's what Paul says to insiders. Or one of the things he says. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. We keep a stack of them there at that table in the back. And we'd love for you to have one so you can look for yourself. Here's what the Bible says, what it doesn't say. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. It is actually reported, Paul writes to insiders, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All right, well, Paul is transitioning here. He's transitioning in chapter 4. He's asserting his authority as, a, as an apostle. And then he transcends in, transitions into this difficult conversation about marriage. He, he brings up a behavior that everyone apparently knew about, but no one was doing anything about. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, instead of using a term that might clarify for things for us as readers, was this the stepmom, was this an ex, was this a widow? He uses the term that we translate as his father's wife. In doing so, Paul anchors to the Old Testament. 
And he anchors to a very specific place in the Old Testament. He anchors to Leviticus, chapter 18, verses 7 through 8. I bring that up because there's a lot of people today are very dismissive when it comes to conversations about marriage. They want to disregard all of Leviticus, especially chapter 18. It's simply not true to say that everything in Leviticus applied to them then, and none of it applies to us now. That son that Paul is writing about was engaging in behavior that our Father in heaven forbids. And that's not the example that the Son of God set for us. So Paul calls these insiders out. He calls them out for their pride. He says, this is arrogant thinking. This is prideful thinking. Sleeping with your father's wife is not enlightened thinking. It's not an example of moving beyond outdated laws that no longer apply. In fact, that particular behavior was behavior that the Romans had laws against. The Romans had laws against that. Well, at least four times in this chapter, chapter 5, Paul says the church needs to disassociate with folks who are continually behaving in ways like this. Paul continues, verses 6 through 8. He says this. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. <laughs> Some guy came up after the service and said, we got to get t-shirts. New lumps. You know? <laughs> It would cause conversations, probably. Um, But you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. All right, now, again, Paul, is he talking to insiders or outsiders? He's talking to insiders. And as he's talking to insiders, because they at least say that they're anchoring to Scripture, he anchors to Scripture with what he's talking about here. Some of your translations may use the word yeast instead of leaven. And that might be helpful for the big picture, but one of the interesting things, if you go with the language as it's there, is it draws the, it helps make it even more rich as you think about this concept of leaven. Now, I know almost nothing about baking, but I got a little education this week from my commentaries. Yeast, they say was not as easy to find back then as it is, is now. And yeast is an additive that you would put into dough. It would be something else that you're putting into it. What they said about leaven was the way this worked is when you didn't have yeast, you would make your batch of dough and you'd take a piece of that dough and you'd set it aside. And then you'd make your bread and, and all that. But that piece that you set aside, as it's fermenting, it acts like yeast. So then next time you make a batch of dough, you take that leaven, you put it into the fresh dough, and it works like yeast. What a brilliant example. Because that's what he's calling out. He says, you guys, you're taking things with you from your culture. You're taking things with you that you should have left behind. And these things are coming into this new thing that God's doing. And it's having a toxic effect. Just like that old leaven over time, if you just keep taking the old stuff over and over and over again... What's going to happen? It's eventually going to get contaminated, right? And then that's going to spread. It was interesting to see that this, this festival of unleavened bread, you know, one of the things that that did, it was kind of like a fail-safe because you had to purge all of the old leaven out of your house and start fresh. So you would take this new leaven now that would start a new cycle, and that new leaven would work in healthy, healthy ways. God had built in a fail-safe. The Israelites were commanded to purge their homes 
of old leaven and bake only unleavened bread from which they would get new leaven that wasn't contaminated, new leaven that could spread in healthy ways. And what you see as Paul is writing letters to different churches, he's saying this is taking different forms among different groups. If you read the letter to Galatians, it has a very different tone. For the Galatians, the problem was, their leaven was, you are holding on to too many of the old laws. You're holding on to too many rules, too many regulations. The Galatians were too quick to point fingers. They were too quick to judge others. That old leaven of oppressive, legalistic religion was destroying their community. Well, in Corinth, it was different. In Corinth, people were too slow to hold one another accountable. And that was spreading. People were beginning to believe holiness doesn't matter. Obedience doesn't matter. All right, let's go back to our text, verses 9 through 11. Here's where Paul makes that distinction between insiders and outsiders. Paul says this, starting in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says this, not at all meaning the people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, meaning then you'd, have to, you'd need to get out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reveler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person among you. I'll be honest, that last sentence, I want to just, let's stop at verse 12 and not have that last sentence. Or we'll find a translation that uses softer language, because you can find it. The word purge, that is a strong word, isn't it? Especially in our culture, there's a whole franchise of movies, the Purge franchise, where a whole lot of bad people do a whole lot of bad things, and they, they legitimize it, right? There are examples in history where distortions of Christianity took the form of the Crusades, and the Spanish Inquisition, and the Salem Witch Trials, where that purging was horrific, completely misrepresenting Christianity. I bet every person in this room also has seen examples of purging done wrong, haven't we? Every one of us. We've seen where people point fingers and they cast stones when their own self-righteousness is a cover for things that they're doing themselves. Well, not wanting to duck the hard stuff, I pressed into that word purge. And as I began to dig in, the first thing that a lot of the commentaries said is notice the quotes around that. Paul has got a lot of quotes in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? And some of the quotes have to do with things that the Corinthians were saying, their own slogans, which he often said, yeah, you're saying this, but you're off. And then there's quotes like this. This quote is right out of the Bible. This quote is right out of the book of Deuteronomy, not just once, many times. If you go to Deuteronomy, you're going to find this. You're going to find that phrase, purge the evil person among you, in Deuteronomy 13, 5, 17, 7, 17, 12, 19, 19, 21, 21, 22, 22, and 22, 24. Paul is anchoring what he's saying here to something that has always been true or supposed to have been true for God's people. And that is when you hit this place where people are blatantly disregarding things that God says, and they're claiming to be brothers and sisters, you have to speak into that. 
when someone refuses to recognize boundaries that God has placed around sex or marriage, like we see here, if someone stirs up division, as Paul calls out in his letter to Titus, if someone refuses to care for their own family, as Paul calls out in a letter to Timothy, when there's a clear and present danger of people behaving like toxic leaven that threatens to spread throughout the rest of the dough, what Paul does is he anchors to a biblical precedent. And in doing so, and this is so important, if you missed what I said there, don't miss this. In doing so, what Paul does by anchoring to Scripture is he anchors to all of it. All of it. And that's where this is so important. Because when he anchors to all of it, he's also anchoring to all these protections that God puts in place that if you're going to even start to go down that path where you're going to be calling out stuff in others, you walk that path cautiously. By anchoring to Scripture, Paul anchors also to what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. If we don't do this in love, then it's empty, it is hollow, it's going to go nowhere. Paul, we're anchoring to those words. Scripture anchors us to Paul's own teaching that the ultimate goal here is not rejection. The ultimate goal is who can we kick out today? The ultimate goal is reconciliation. That's the ultimate goal. To try to get us to that place like we were singing with this song, with the Hosanna. Lord, have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. That's what we're going for. Scripture anchors us to Jesus' own teaching about starting first with ourselves. Before we look at a speck in someone else's eye, what are we supposed to do first? Look at the log in our own. By anchoring to Scripture, Paul anchors to the teaching of Jesus, which says, if there is something that you notice in someone else's behavior, and you feel like you're supposed to speak into that, you go first to that individual one-on-one. And then bring one other person. You don't escalate this thing. Unless it really comes down to that. And even then, you have all these guardrails, all these cautions in place. Scripture is filled with very practical teaching, guardrail after guardrail, that if you feel like you've got to proceed down that path, do it in a cautious, consistent, and God-honoring way. So that's insiders. That's insiders. What about outsiders? Outsiders, it's a different conversation. Different conversation. And that conversation is going to involve, at a minimum, searching for common ground. Common ground. Because scripture won't be a common ground for most of you. It comes down to living individual lives that inspire others to say, I actually care about what you have to say. It's going to come down to contributing towards a kind of faith community that makes others say, yeah, I'd even want to associate with you. It's hard work, hard work, both with insiders and outsiders. And it's a conversation that will involve a refusal on our part to engage in slander and name-calling and threats. And that brings us to the second bullet under the same category. This is still under number two. Are you having a conversation with someone who is seeking wisdom or behaving foolishly or someone with malicious intent? Dr. Henry Cloud does a great job of this. He says, if you're going to have a conversation with somebody, you should probably recognize, are you having a conversation right now with someone who's walking in wisdom, someone who's behaving foolishly, or someone that has evil intent? Because those are three different conversations. If someone is walking in wisdom, great. You can have a productive conversation because they want to get, they want to learn, Right? If you're having conversation with someone who's just behaving foolishly, 
the only way a fool learns is the hard way, right? And if you're having a conversation with someone who is, has malicious intent, they want to destroy people who disagree, you need to protect yourself. Because everything you say can and will be used against you, right? As much as we'd like to think, as much as I'd like to think, that if I just sit down with someone and I treat them with respect and I listen first and I do my best to find common ground, it's going to go well. <laughs> I am so naive. So naive. All right, let's move on to number three. Number three in our outline. Bless you. See, the great thing about sneezing in church, that's all on three. One, two, three. Bless you. How about that? See? People are like, oh, I'm going to come to church with a cold. Get blessings. Number three in our outline. Number three in our outline. If you want to have a God-honoring conversation about sex and marriage, nothing matters more than the life you live. Can I get an amen? They need to see a community of people who are saying, bless you. We want to bless you. We're not out to get you. We want to bless you. We want your life to be blessed. So here it is. I mean, if you want to set the example, honor God with your body. That is what all of chapter 6 is about. Honor God with your body. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. It says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know, not know that he who joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. One of the many, and there are many, one of the many reasons that God puts boundaries around sex is because of the exploitive things that can happen when people aren't attentive to that. Craig Blomgard, Blomberg writes this. Paul's theology of sexuality is profoundly humanizing. And it treats people with the care and dignity that creatures made in God's image deserve. In my research this week, I found out that the Romans had separate legal standards when it came to adultery. If you had sex with a slave, that was fine. That was one thing. It was just sex. If you had sex with someone that society said was important... That was a different thing altogether. In Corinth, as is the case all around the world, people were profiting, profiting from the prostitution of slaves. And in Corinth, because in that time and in that place, a lot of people would abandon babies, especially girls that they didn't want. They would just abandon them. It was legal. People would collect these babies to be raised for this purpose. It makes complete sense that Paul would say things like this in chapter 6, verse 18. Flee, flee, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or another person. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a great price. Honor God with your body. Paul calls upon us to honor God with our bodies as individuals and because the church is a body of bodies, together, together, we should also embody this. To the insiders, Paul says flee, and the Greek word that's used is pornea. Pornea. That's a, the Greek word that Paul chose. I'm not a linguist, but it's my understanding that this is the broadest word that Paul could have used for that audience. Pornea. He says, flee from it all. 
all. That's kind of what this word is, a broad word. Don't engage in behaviors that objectify one another. Don't engage in behaviors that exploit one another. Don't engage in behaviors that may be consensual, but the two of you are consenting to behaviors that are outside of the boundaries that God has put in place. One of the commentaries I looked at was written by a pastor. And he just kind of almost paused as he was writing and he just said, you know what we're talking about because you see the devastation every day. You see what happens when people step outside of God's boundaries and how these wounds can wound more deeply than pretty much anything else. Flee from it. Flee from it. I can't think of anything that wounds deeper or impacts the rest of our lives more than when we step outside of God's boundaries in this area. And the tragedy goes even beyond the wounds and even beyond the collateral damage. The more I study the scriptures, the more I see the primary purpose of Christian marriage is prophetic. It is prophetic. Marriage was designed by God to be a relationship like no other. It's a shadow of a wedding that is to come. It's a shadow of that day that on Palm Sunday, we were proclaiming a day when Jesus comes back. A day when he comes back. The day when Jesus returns for his bride. And who is his bride? It's the church. Until that day comes, Paul calls upon those of us who call upon the name of Jesus to do this. Number four. If I were to summarize chapter seven, I would summarize all of chapter seven like this. Prioritize faithfulness. Prioritize faithfulness. That is what chapter seven is about. There is a practical teaching here for every person in this room in chapter seven. Why do I say that? Because listen to these categories. I guarantee you fit into more, one or more of these. There's practical teaching in chapter 7 for those who are single, for those who are engaged, for those who are separated, for those who are divorced, for those who are widows, for those who have been married to an unbeliever, or for those who have been withholding affection from their husband or wife. The common theme that he's writing through all of these, common theme through all of these, is faithfulness. Faithfulness. What people look at us when they see our relationships and how faithful we are, they're to say that's the relationship that we can actually have with God. Made for one another, faithful to one another, forsaking all others, expressing real love towards one another. Time is short, Paul says. Whatever state you're in, for your own good and for the good of others, for our witness to the world, prioritize faithfulness to God. The day will come, listen to this, the day will come when our relationship with God and one another will be so fully reconciled that marriage itself is going to be a shadow of the past. There's going to come a day in the kingdom of God when there will no longer be marriage, it won't be necessary. We're going to have that kind of intimacy with one another that we only see a shadow of here on earth. That's the kingdom. That's the wedding. That's the relationship that we're invited to prepare ourselves for. That's why, you know, I started off by saying this is a hard teaching. This is good news. This is good news. That we're moving towards a day when there will be no loneliness. No abuse. We're all going to be 
in the community that we were created for. So hear the word of the Lord. Do not be deceived, Paul says. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. And then after giving specific examples, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When people experience this for the first time, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. When we did that human trafficking series, um, some of you recommended that I watch a movie called Nefarious. Nefarious. And I, I don't know if I've ever watched a movie that both wrecked me as much as that wrecked me and inspired me as much as it inspired me. First 90 minutes or so wrecked me because they went all over the world and they showed the depravity that can happen when people neglect these boundaries that God put in place. And they treat others like objects and they fail to recognize all these things that God put in place. Just horrible. But then the last couple minutes, some of these women that have been telling their stories, some of those women encountered Jesus. Encountered him. Experienced the never-ending love of God. You know, that chases us down, fights till we're found, leaves the 99. And as they shared about what it was like for them to experience love, love, because a lot of these guys said they loved them, to experience love and grace and this cleansing that comes from the one who says, what those men did to you, those lies that were told to you, that is not my kingdom. In fact, I instruct my people flee from that because there's a better way. When they experience that better way, They just wept and wept and wept, as I said before, as they did their best to describe that overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. A love that we can't earn, a love that we don't deserve. And a sacrificial love that we're going to commemorate here on Friday. And a victorious love that we're going to commemorate on Easter. As we seal this time with a song, would you please pray with me? Father, we certainly know that we could spend hours and hours and we'd only get to the first snowflakes on the tip of the iceberg that is this topic. Father, we pray that you would take this time that we've had together and anything that was of you, that it would take root, that which was not would fade away. Lord, we pray for those who've experienced firsthand what it's like to step outside those boundaries. May they experience even right now, Lord, that grace, that love. Your heart for us to experience something more beautiful than we could ever experience between two people here on earth. Lord, thank you for demonstrating the true extent of your love by laying down your life for us. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be a people who don't see enemies when we look around this world And if we do, we pray for them and we recognize that there's a true enemy who's throwing leaven after leaven after leaven into our lives. May this be a day where we could start fresh, God. May this be a day where we could turn to you. May this holy week be a week where like never before, 
we surrender ourselves fully and we put our trust fully in you and experience that fresh start in that new life. And Lord, we pray that increasingly you'd help us to be a individuals and a church that has conversations that are done well. Help us to respect, help us to listen, help us to love. And when there is a hard word to bring, help us to do it with both grace and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.